Well, on Good Friday, we have to come face to face with the cross. It's actually something we should probably do every day in our life. But tonight, we're going to deal with it. You know, the cross is a symbol that's unmistakable and inescapable. Whether it's on a piece of jewelry, like you see here, or maybe a tattoo on human flesh, or maybe it's an enormous structure on top of a hill, like this one in Kerrville, Texas, or maybe one in the Spanish Valley of the Fallen, or maybe the one overlooking Rio, or maybe like the one that you hold in your hand right now. The cross is eye-catching, it's inspiring, and it's powerful. It can be confused, it can be misused, but the cross can never be ignored. You see, the story of the cross has worked its way into our world, and that can never be undone. If you've heard a sermon on the cross, you've probably heard of the horrors that were a part of it. You know, the Roman practice of crucifixion was beyond horrific. It's the most cruel and despicable form of execution that any person or society has ever invented. But it's also worth pointing out tonight that as brutal as the cross was, as with many truths, we've allowed culture to come in and infiltrate and influence a bit of our thinking about the cross. Not just our modern culture, but all of culture. You know, there's some medieval paintings that have portrayed the cross much differently than the way that they're painted, than it's painted in the gospel. These images tend to show uh, this angry God who was so exceedingly angry that he had to pour out all of his wrath on Jesus. It's really an idea that's drawn more from pagan religions than from the gospels the Bible that we read. And one of the many problems with this idea is that John 3.16 does not say, God so hated the world that he killed his son. It actually says God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes on him would inherit eternal life. I know some of you are thinking right now, but doesn't the Bible say that first part too? Doesn't it say he was bruised for our iniquities? That the Lord laid our iniquities on him because of all of our transgressions? Doesn't it say that it was the will of the Lord to crush him? It does. Isaiah 53 certainly paints a picture that he would take on all of our sin and suffer in our place. And that it was the will of the Lord that these things would happen. But it's also important that we get the story correct. You see, many Christians, whether Catholic or Protestant, liberal or conservative, we've imagined a story that goes something more like this. We messed up badly. God got very angry and decided he needed to punish us, but he sent his son to punish us instead, to punish him instead, excuse me. But the Bible paints a much bigger picture than this. It actually paints a completely different kind of story. And I don't have time tonight to deal with all the threads of the story, but I do want to take just a few minutes to dig into a few aspects of the cross It sometimes seem a bit overlooked when we get to this day of all days. In Paul's summary of the Christian message, he says this, The Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. See, this doesn't mean in in accordance to the stories that we've heard with a few biblical footnotes to go alongside it. Paul's referring to the entire story of Israel's ancient scriptures. And while it's absolutely true that Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins, there's no question about it. That is not the whole story. See, the mission of the cross was never just about saving us from something. It was more about saving us for something. So as we go on tonight, we're going to look at two aspects of the cross, but we'll do it in three ways. We're going to take a look at the original purpose, what love really looks like. 
and how we've been restored, both for now and forever. So let's dive in here with original purpose. You know, before we can really grasp what's being redeemed through the cross of Christ, we have to remember what God's original plan was that got corrupted. When we talk about redemption and reconciliation, we use that kind of language. There's a built-in assumption that we're talking about is something that was in a particular state that somehow was fractured and damaged and now is being brought back into that original state. By the way, this is why things like racial reconciliation in America is tough to get to, to, it's a tough thing to say. So we're not trying to bring something back. We're trying to make something new. But with us, in our relationship with God, creation was good at one point. It got destroyed. And so words like reconciliation are absolutely appropriate for this point in time. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. We have it on the screen. If you have your Bible, you can open the app, open the pages. The three of you that have those, my wife and two others. <laughs> right here, there's two. Can I get a three? Can I get a three? Genesis 1.26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see what the Bible's telling us here is that we were created. We were created to image God. To be his imagers. It's what we are by definition. See, being image bearers is not an ability that we have, but a status in God's uh, universe for humans is to be image bearers. In fact, I would suggest that to be fully human is to fully image God. The degree to which we stop imaging God is the degree to which we fail to be human in the way that he has designed. See, this verse also informs us that God intended us to be his representatives on the planet. We're told to go and create more images, imagers. Be fruitful and multiply, right? To oversee the earth, to steward all of the resources and harness them for the benefit of all other human imagers. That's what it means when it says have dominion, to subdue, to rule over. See, God made a wonderful creation and he put humans in place to reflect his praise to creation and to look after the world. I think what it means to be made in the image of God is that our very lives and who we are becomes angled mirrors, one to reflect the love of God's, uh, the, the God's love into the world, and the other to reflect creation's worship back to God. When we're rightly oriented, that's what we will do. But we as humans, we like to mess things up. Let me mess up something today. It's okay, you don't raise your hand. When we mess things up, it's not just because we break some seemingly arbitrary rule like don't eat the apple. It's because we start taking orders from something or someone within the creation rather than from the creator himself. And what happens is the angles change. Those angled mirrors start pointing at all of the wrong things. And then when that happens, our worship changes, our lives change, and creation itself changes in reaction. When humans fail to image God rightly, heaven grieves and the earth literally falls apart. 
And when the earth and humanity fall apart, there's only one thing that can put it back together again. That is perfect love. So let's take a look at what perfect love really looks like. I think love is quite possibly one of the most misused and misunderstood words in the English language. I mean, even our dictionaries fail to do it justice. If God is the originator of love and he gets to define what it is, then our dictionaries have some catching up to do. If you take a look in there, you'll see things like this. A profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person. A feeling of warm, personal attachment or deep affection as a, for a parent to the child or to a friend. A person toward whom love is felt. A beloved person, a sweetheart. That's what it says. It's not that love isn't those things, though. It's just that real love and perfect love involves so much more than that. When we stop right there with love, we miss it. And our mirrors are angled at the wrong things. John 15, 13 says, There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friend. You see, the pinnacle of real love is actually sacrifice. And sacrificial love is what's at the heart of true redemption. Every time. You can't redeem anything without sacrificial love. If you want to begin to understand love, though, and I think we all do, we want to know how to love, we want to know how to be loved, and I want to submit to you that to even understand love, you have to start by looking at the cross, like the one that you have in your hand. I think it's easy for us to overlook what it took for God to become incarnated in human flesh. We can't really fathom the kind of humility that it took for God who created all things to then come and step into his creation and experience all the limitations and the trials and the temptations and the pains that are common to every human. But it's part of what it took for God to become man. Not only did God become a human being, but he became a human being in the lowest form in a sense. The Bible says he wasn't much to look at. We spend a lot of time wanting to look good. Jesus spent no such time doing any such thing. I think these pretty paintings of a weird white Jesus have got things confused for us. And the handful of the non-white Jesus ones do the same. See, nobody on earth today has a clue what Jesus really looks like. But Isaiah tells us, that he would not have an attractive appearance. Nothing about the way he looked would cause anyone to desire him. We also know that at times he was broke, and at other times he was homeless. That was the experience that Jesus had. See, it wasn't just enough for him to come and explore the humility of humanity, but he took on humanity in its lowest form. He'd be born in a place that was only fit for animals, and he would die in a place that was fit for no one or no thing. And yet this man, this God-man, would come and not only live this way, but he would come on a holy mission to lay down his life for his enemy. For his enemy. His enemies, you ask? That's right, his enemies. See, Romans 5, 6, and 10 says this. While we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps a good man, someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, 
will be saved by his life. There is so much in those four verses. We could preach a whole series right there. Tonight I'm just going to focus on two verses, verse 8 and 10, for just another moment. So again, verse 8 says this, But God demonstrated his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 tells us that we were his enemies. And do you know why that is? It's because of sin. The chapter goes on to tell us that when sin entered the world, death entered with it. God is a God of life, and death is God's enemy. People were not designed to be the enemy of God. That wasn't the image that we were intended to bear. But we got that way because we chose something over him. We chose our ways over his ways. We shook our fists at him and we told him, we don't care what you have to say. Whatever you're saying now, it doesn't matter. We don't want any part of his righteousness. We don't want any part of his laws. Our first mother and father decided they would just eat what they wanted because they wanted to be in control. They thought they knew best. And then we as humanity, we moved on to believing what we wanted, to hating whoever we wanted, to killing whoever we wanted, to being intimate with whoever we wanted, to building whatever we wanted and destroying whatever we wanted. We've existed for one purpose, and that was for whatever we wanted. We looked at God who fashioned us with so much precision and detail, so much love and care, and we said to him, you know what, we'll take your precision and detail. We'll take these bodies and we'll take these minds, but you can keep all of your purposes. And with that, we're dead in our sin, utterly hopeless and helpless. With our sin, we make a deal with death. We partner with the other side and we become, quite literally, the enemy of God. But see, God isn't like you and me. God knows that love is far more than just fondness, and warm feelings, and calling somebody sweetheart. God knew and God knows that true love does not have a boundary in what it will do to restore broken relationship. That's what it means when it says, while you and me were still sinners, that Christ died for us to reconcile us to God through his own death. You see, this is love. Love that puts everything on the line and leaves nothing behind. When Jesus was being whipped and beaten and mocked and scorned, he wasn't some helpless creature, by the way, being taken captive by the power of darkness, though that is what the Bible says they thought at the time. Morgan and I were discussing this earlier this week, and he said, man, he's like a gladiator out there, just leaving everything on the line, fighting to right every wrong that had ever occurred. I think it's a beautiful picture. He wasn't someone who was taken captive. His life wasn't taken from him. He said, I lay it down. He laid it down. That's an important thing for us to catch. Sometimes in this crucifixion narrative, it sounds like, oh, this guy was perfect and he just got rounded up and now I don't have to be rounded up. It's not like that. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. And yeah, he was taking the punishment that we deserved and he would go on and die the death that we deserve to die. But he was doing so much more than that. You see, Jesus was not just dealing with the punishment of sin. He was also dealing with the consequence of it. The consequence of sin is this. It's separation from God. Now listen, this is a thought that Jesus could hardly fathom. 
Even after gone through the humility of clothing his own divinity with humanity, he still had perfect relationship with his father. The thought of the consequence of sin, the ultimate consequence of being separated from his father was almost more than he could bear. The Bible tells us that Jesus goes to the garden on the Mount of Olives and he begins to pray and he's talking to his father and he utters these famous words. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now scholars and theologians, granted many and most, much smarter than me, have debated the meaning of the cup. But to be honest with you, I don't understand the debate. When I look at all the physical punishment that Jesus would have to endure, when we go and see that man on a cross, we see that man being scourged and scorned, I do understand it's easy to presume that that physical brutality was the cup he wanted to pass, but I don't see it that way. And I'll submit another thought to you tonight. I see a Jesus who for all of eternity had perfect fellowship with his Father, an unbroken circle of love for all of time. And now he stands at the precipice of the unimaginable. He's preparing himself to take on the sin of the whole world, and the consequence of that is inescapable once he takes on our sin that fellowship is over for the first time in all of time jesus the son of god would be separated from his father and i think this is hard sometimes for us to understand because we don't seem to value unbroken fellowship with the father in the same way that jesus did we're still pretty comfortable with our sin and while we may understand what it means to grieve the loss of a loved one i think that myself And if I could say this, all of us, we fail to grasp what it really means to grieve the Holy Spirit of God that occurs through our sin, the way we live our lives. Our casual attitude towards sin honestly make this passage about letting the cup pass too difficult to grasp. So we grab hold of something that makes a little more sense. But Jesus, he had no such problem. He grasps it with all of his being, and the thought of it created so much anxiety that he began to sweat blood and to start to ask if there was any other way. I'll take a bit of liberty here, but I could almost imagine a conversation going something like this. Jesus is there in the garden, and he says, if there's any other way, if there's any other way that I could rescue these people, if I could redeem them without having to endure this separation from you, Is there any other way? And I can just almost hear the Father saying, well, you've been on this planet for 33 years. You dealt with every temptation, with every trial. You've never sinned. You've always done what I've asked. You don't deserve this. And you don't have to do this. But if you don't endure the separation from me, even for just three hours... Nathan's going to have to endure separation from me forever. If you don't don't drink this cup of separation, Troy's going to be separated forever. I believe that all the faces of all of us, all the humans that would ever be made and created by God in His image may have just begun to flash. The Father just saying, you don't have to do this, but if you don't, They'll be separated from us forever. 
So yeah, it's my will that you drink the cup. It's my will that you drink the cup. Because if you don't, we can't save all of these people. They'll be separated from us forever. And it's to this prospect that the Son says, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus goes on through the betrayal, through the trial, through the false accusations and testimonies, through the torture and ultimately through the cross. And you see, when Jesus laid down his life and got on the cross, he took your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world. And when it came upon him, that perfect fellowship that he valued more than anything was in a moment broken. And he cried out, Father, why have you abandoned me? But this perfect Passover lamb... He shed his blood so that all those who believe in him can have his blood applied to their sin. And because he endured that separation, the separation that was so great, it caused the earth to quake, the sky to go dark. And for people who moments before were nailing nails through his wrist to say, surely this was the Son of God. When that eternal Trinitarian separation occurred, no one missed it. But he did it to bring us back. And now we reap the benefit. Having opportunity now to realign ourselves in fellowship. Not because we could ever realign ourselves. But because he did the alignment. And said walk in this way now. This broken fellowship that we as humanity had experienced from the Father. Now had a pathway to restoration. Because Jesus took on our sin. But remember what I said at the beginning. The mission of the cross was never only about saving us from something. It was about rescuing us for something. That brings me to the last point here. And that's that we were restored both for now and forever. Romans 5, 12 and 18 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Continuing on in God's Word in Colossians 2, 13-15, it says, You who are dead in your sins and trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespass by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. That's the separation and death. He set that aside, nailing it to the cross. And when he did so, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame, and he triumphed over them in him, his son. You see, Jesus didn't just take our punishment. He didn't even just take the consequence of our our, our death. Oh, he did so much more. The Bible, the New Testament, says that Jesus' death and what it accomplished doesn't just deal with sin. It talks about overthrowing the dark powers that have taken over this world and have taken over our hearts. And now, at the cross, Jesus said, the ruler of this world has been cast out. Cast out of this place and cast out of your lives. On the cross, wrote Paul, that Jesus would disarm the principalities and powers. You see, all the early Christian teachers knew this. They understood it clearly. They knew that the powers had separated people and hardened their hearts against God and against one another. They had lured them into sin and hatred and greed and lust. But now all of that was being defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. And the defeat of these powers was what they and what we are called to live, are called to live in. 
We're called to recognize these things. That we don't have to be bound up by the things that twist and manipulate our heart. We don't have to be bound up by the world and its systems. But like the early church, we're called to live in this new freedom that the blood of cross, or the blood at the cross paid for. And that's why it's important that we live out multi-ethnic relationships, a classless community where no one is better than anyone else and we prefer our brothers and sisters over ourselves. You see, it was the powers of darkness that kept humanity locked up in their sins and in their separation against one another and from one another. But now, because of what Jesus has done, those powers have been overthrown. It happened at the cross, and on the cross, Jesus exhausted all the power of sin and all the powers of darkness and all the power of death and separation. He took it on himself, the unavoidable consequence, so that the grip of the powers would be broken forever. New Testament creation, new covenant creation is now launched as a result, and with rescued humans here, at last able to carry out God's purpose in the world, we can walk as the imagers we were designed to be. What it means for us, this cross on Calvary, it means that the door of our prison now stands open. And we're free to resume our intended vocation. To be image bearers. To be the royal priesthood. To worship the living God with free hearts. Free of sin. Free of hatred. And free of offense. We are free ourselves and able to follow the example of our leader. One who understands that perfect love will always lay down its life for someone else. Not once, not twice, but over and over and over and over again. We're free to be his agents in the world. We're free to affect the world, not through the world's depraved methods, but through following the royal way of Jesus. So what does it look like to be a new covenant imager of God? Well, it's all right there in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are hungry for justice. Blessed are those who care for the poor, who live without anger or lust, who make the world a radically better place for everyone else. You see, the death on the cross was never about getting people to heaven. It was about getting people to image God here on earth, to reflect his glory in this corrupted earth now and to one day rule and reign with him in the perfect new created earth that is to come after all sin is finally put to death once and for all. See, true Christians have been living this way for 2,000 years. And though we often forget it, true image bearers stand at the root of our somewhat battered concept of human rights. The idea of human rights and human flourishing was not invented by the world. It comes from Jesus. From Jesus as a focal point of the ancient covenant being renewed and being recreated and being restored. And this restoration began with his victory on the cross. So when you see a cross, whether it's hanging around someone's neck or on top of a hill, or maybe even the one that you're holding in your hand today, let it remind you that the power of love has overcome the love of power. The power of love has overcome the powers of darkness. Let it remind you that the power of sin has been rendered powerless in the end. The cross initiated a great offensive against the gates of hell and against the corruption of humanity. And now you and me, this spirit-empowered church, we're the ones who will do the assaulting against the gates of hell. You see, the prison gates of hell that kept people enslaved in their selfishness and their lust and their greed and their anger and their racism has been defeated once and for all on the cross. And now we've been empowered to walk out that freedom 
both in our own lives and on display for the world to see. I'm about to wrap up, but I want you to listen to me. It's important that we get this. All of the things defeated at the cross that we've talked about all night, they will never be defeated by cultural uprisings and modern sensibilities. It's not possible. The world never has and never will have an answer for sin and all its consequences. The answer lies in the matchless power of a people reconciled to God, filled with his power and filled with his righteousness, who then desire to go and reflect his image in every place where they find themselves. And this, my friend, is what image bearing is all about. That we would go on our business, do the things we need to do, and yet continually reflecting the love of God to the world and reflecting the praise of creation back to the creator. You see, being free to live this way is the power of the cross. It's real, it's effective, and right now it's available. Would you just bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? In a moment, we're going to receive the bread and the cup and remember just how much Jesus gave up to bring us back to where we needed to be. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you took and absorbed not just the punishment, not just the consequence. Oh, but you went one step further. You restored us to who we were meant to be all along. Lord, we thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you for the power of the cross. Lord, let us never look at the cross again the same. When we see the cross, Lord, would you fill our hearts with empowerment? Would you fill our spirits with your righteousness? Would you fill our minds with your thoughts? Lord, that when we see the cross, we will remember that everything that has ever held us back has been defeated. That we're now free to walk out of our own prisons and to be who we always intended to be. Jesus, we honor you. Thank you for being the good shepherd that laid down his life for his friends. God, thank you for calling us your friends. Thank you for affecting our world by stepping into it and changing it forever. Or tonight, would you change our hearts forever? Let us leave this place different than we came. Let us bear your image in all places that we go.